You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. sermon reading says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, uh, but of imperishable, through the living and the, abide, and the abiding word of God. First Peter chapters, chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. All throughout the Old Testament, when God's people find themselves in trouble, the call is pretty much always the same, to remember. And that was especially the case for the people who found themselves in exile to Babylon. They were going to a place that was not their home. They were going to be surrounded by all sorts of foreign deities and idols. There was going to be tension. There was going to be fear. They needed instruction. And so when God sent the prophet Jeremiah to give them instructions for living in exile, the commandment was essentially that. Remember who you are. Live life the way you live life. Build homes, establish families, plant gardens, live for the welfare of the city, but remember to whom you belong and be a radiance of light in the midst of that city. Be an example of what God's people are meant to be, even when you find yourself in Babylon. When we look at verse 17 of this passage today, Peter looks at these Christians And he calls them people who are living in exile. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And for some of the recipients of this letter, that was quite literally true. These early Christians were scattered all over the place. And many of them felt like they had no home. They didn't feel like they had a place to which they belong, especially those who were saved out of the Jewish faith and now didn't even feel like they belonged in the culture in which they grew up in. And not only that, but they were so far away from so many other believers. But even on top of that, so many of these Christians were experiencing persecution from a variety of different places. And so they felt lost, they felt hopeless, they didn't really know how to act. And in the same way, Peter steps in here in the role of Jeremiah, now speaking to a group of believers in exile, and he calls them to remember. To remember what Christ has done, to remember who they are, and through that, to know how to live. So often, most Christian teaching 
defaults to focus on behavior. This is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to say. This is how you're supposed to say it. This is when you're supposed to say it. And this is where you're supposed to go. And if you don't do all of these things the right way, or if you do things that are not part of this, then there's going to be problems. We talk a lot about conduct and behavior. And at the beginning, it feels like that's where Peter is going. He begins with the idea of conduct, saying that you should conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. But he doesn't really spend a whole lot of time on the how or the what of that conduct. He doesn't really tell them right here off the bat, this is what you should be doing and this is the kind of conduct that you should be having, but he instead goes to why they should be conducting themselves in a certain manner, why they should be living in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. He says, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And he continues on and on and on. He says, you should be conducting yourselves well because you know who you are. You should be conducting yourselves well because you remember what Christ has done for you and who you are now because of the work of Jesus in your life. And even though you're experiencing exile, even though you're experiencing separation, even though you're experiencing these incredibly harsh present trials and persecution, you need to conduct yourselves in a manner pleasing to God. And the only way to do that is by remembering who you are. In the same way, we are in exile. It may look a little different. It may feel a little different. But the Bible tells us that as followers of Jesus, that we are citizens of heaven living on earth. And more often than not, this world really doesn't feel like our home. We feel displaced. We feel like we don't necessarily fit in the way that the world around us seems to fit in. The way we live, the way we practice, the way we believe is so counterintuitive and countercultural that we are experiencing constantly that feeling of being, as Stanley Howard calls us, resident aliens. That we're here and we live here, but we don't really belong here. And we're waiting for that day, as we just sang about, when Christ returns and makes this world into our home, into the place in which we're meant to dwell. But for right now, that's not who we are, and this is not where we feel like we belong. And so as we live in the midst of exile, sometimes even experiencing persecution, sometimes experiencing all the pains that come with just who we are as people who still fall into sin, as we live in a world that is just surrounding us with temptations toward idolatry and towards walking away from Jesus. Our calling is the same as the calling of the people in Babylon, as the calling that's the same for the people that Peter was writing to, to remember to conduct ourselves in a way that is glorifying to Jesus by remembering who Jesus has made us to be. The primary way, because it is so easy to forget who we are and start living like Babylon, the primary way to ensure that we conduct ourselves in a Christ-like manner is to daily remember who Jesus has saved us to be and then act accordingly to that truth. And so we have to ask the question, and thankfully Peter's about to answer it. Who are we? 
What does this passage teach us about who we are as followers of Jesus living in exile? Peter gives us a few words here in this passage that I think are worth really grabbing onto here. The first thing that he teaches is that we are ransomed. He says, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. We were talking a little bit just about 90s church culture before the service today, but also just 90s culture in which I grew up, 80s and 90s, ransoms were a really big deal. Like I lived with a pretty constant fear that I was going to be the victim of someone stealing me to ransom me back to my parents. Because there were a couple high profile cases, right? On the news, you would see some stories of kind of high profile children who were kidnapped. And then the only way the kidnapper was going to give them back is if their families paid them exorbitant amounts of money. And then ransoms kind of moved their way into just the cultural dialogue, right? And so you would see ransoms in TV shows or movies. And then it worked its way down even into cartoons where you would just see cartoon character cutting out the letters out of magazines to make some sort of weird ransom. It was a really big deal. And I genuinely was afraid a lot that I was going to be kidnapped and ransomed. And I don't know if it was just because I was afraid of being kidnapped or of learning what my actual dollar value was, but they were a really big deal. But just in case you didn't grow up in that era, right? A ransom is simply this something or someone is stolen away. And the only way that they're going to be returned is if the victim of that crime pays the criminal. And now Peter here says that we are people who have been ransomed. And so we have to break that down a little bit. Because in order to be ransomed, we have to first be in captivity. We have to be taken away. We have to be victims of some sort of a crime. And Peter says here that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. And so what does that mean? We were in captivity to the same thing that our parents were, to the same things that their parents were, to the same things that parents and parents and parents and generations and generations have been in captivity to. We are in captivity to our sin and to the guilt and the shame that we inherit as people who are sinners. And so we're in captivity, but then the implication of the word ransom here is that we are in captivity to something that we can't escape, that our sin and the captivity in which we are living because of that sin is so great that there is nothing that I can do to be able to escape. Just like a small child who was taken from their parents and could only be returned through the parents paying the ransom, we are in captivity so deep to our sin that there is nothing I can do to manage To escape it, somebody had to pay. But here's the problem as Peter continues on. He says that we weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold. Silver or gold aren't enough to buy us out of the captivity in which we find ourselves in. It's not like my parents could just step in and pay enough money to buy me out of my sin. It's not like I could go to the bank and take out some sort of loan or petition some sort of wealthy family to pay the cost to be able to buy me out because it just doesn't work. Because that's not how the exchange rate works spiritually here. You can't have something perishable like silver or gold pay for something meant to be imperishable. You can't have something corruptible like silver or gold that's meant to save us into a place of being beyond corruption. Impurity can't bring purity. Imperishable can't afford the imperishable. 
But in verse 19, he says, we were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus. With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Because our captivity was so great, because our sin was so overwhelming, the only thing that could buy us out of that sin was the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless, and holy lamb had to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. The imperishable Jesus, the eternal Jesus, had to put on perishable flesh so that he could pay our cost. The pure and perfect and holy Jesus, who knew no sin, had to become sin so that we could become sons and daughters of God. He had to buy us out of that with something that we could never afford. In the midst of exile, the Israelites were surrounded by all sorts of shiny and distracting idols. And the reason that they found themselves in exile is because they started worshiping those gods and thinking those gods could do something for them. And in a different way, we are constantly surrounded by shiny, distracting idols that are trying to give us promises of salvation, trying to tell us all the things that they can buy for us or buy us out of, trying to gain our affection by distracting our attention away from Jesus. But if it were up to the shiny idols in this world, the things that promise salvation, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses and we would still be in captivity. But in Christ Jesus, we have been ransomed once and for all. That he has paid that cost in full so that our captivity is completely broken and we're able to walk in freedom. And so when you find yourself maybe living a little more like Babylon than you would like, remember Calvary. And remember that Jesus has bought you out of that sin that Jesus has bought you out of that idolatry, that Jesus has bought you out of that captivity and shame, and he has saved you into righteousness and live like people who have been ransomed. He also tells us that we have been made believers. These passages that we go through in the Gospels after Easter are really interesting. The way that everything works its way out after the resurrection is so strange and unexpected. And in the gospel passage that we read today, we see these women just walking and talking about Jesus because it's just the biggest news, right? Jesus has been killed. Some people are saying that he's risen from the grave, but there's not a whole lot of evidence for that. And so, of course, everybody's walking and talking about this stuff to the point where when Jesus approaches these women and they don't recognize him, when he asks what they're talking about, they are shocked that he doesn't even fully understand. Are you, I think they, what was it? Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on here? And so we see this story of these women literally walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus and having no idea that they're doing that. They don't recognize Jesus for who he is. But what's even more wild about this story is that Jesus is walking with them while they are actively denying that he is the Messiah. They said, we were really hoping he was a great prophet and he did many good works. And we were hoping he was the one to redeem Israel. We were hoping that he was the savior that was promised. We were hoping that he was the Messiah. 
but now he's died. And so clearly he wasn't. And some of our friends are telling us that they saw him, but they're probably just mourning because there's no way that's possible. And so they were walking with Jesus, denying him as the Messiah until he broke bread with them and made himself known to them. They weren't believers in Jesus until he made that possible for them. So look at verse 20 here. Peter says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That Jesus was Jesus long before we knew his name. That Jesus was there long before in the beginning. That he was the son of God in equal nature to God. Part of this beautiful, holy trinity in perfect communion with God. That's who Jesus has always been before we knew him, before we understood who he was, before we believed in his name, Jesus was. That's why he said before Abraham was, I am. And then he made himself manifest to us. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The one who was perfect and holy and with God for all of eternity wanted to show us himself in a way that we could never imagine. By putting on flesh and blood and walking in our midst, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But still, just like those women, we don't believe. In each and every one of our lives and the lives of every single person that's ever lived and every single person that even now claims the name of Jesus, there have been times in our lives where Jesus was walking right beside us, when the gospel was being present right in front of us and we didn't believe. Because scripture is very clear, but also we have the testimony of our own lives that we really aren't believers by nature. We are skeptics by nature, ready to doubt anything and everything whenever we really get the chance. But that's the power of the resurrection. That's the power of salvation. That we who are not believers, even though there have been times in our lives when Jesus is so clearly present in our lives, when the gospel was right there in front of our face that we could still deny it. Even people like us are able to be changed by the power of the gospel. When the spirit moves in our lives and takes a heart of stone and turns it to flesh so that we are able to believe. That's the first movement of salvation there. As Jesus saves us by his grace and mercy, the spirit moves into our lives to make us people who are able to believe the unbelievable, that the son of God became one of us for us, died and rose again. And it's only by the power of God that we are able to believe that at all. He says he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Peter says here that your belief, that your faith is not by the work of just reading enough books or studying enough things, that the fact that you can claim the name of Jesus and believe in the resurrection is a miracle and is an act of God all on his own, that he gave this faith to you, that he made you a believer in God so that your faith and your hope are in him and in him alone. 
And so as we're able to sing songs in the midst of exile, as we're able to pray prayers and confess truths and believe in the name of Jesus in exile, that's cause for us to give thanks to Jesus through whom I am a believer in God and through whom you are a believer in God, recognizing that everything that we have, even down to our faith and our belief in Christ, is all the work of Jesus, and we should return that back in praise and adoration. Because through Jesus, we're ransomed, and we are made believers in him. Peter also says that through Jesus, we are purified. About every 10 years or so, it feels like there's a big news story about miners. That somewhere, whether it's in the country or somewhere all around the world, it seems like every five to 10 years, there's just a story that captivates the world as some miners go down into the mine like they do day after day after day. And then the mine that used to be something of great structural integrity just collapses down around them and they're trapped and they can't get out. And so it becomes this very sensitive time where they've only got a certain amount of oxygen and they don't have food and they don't have any nourishment that they need. And so all of a sudden, all of these groups come in and start working hard to excavate that mine, to be able to get the miners out. And it's such a cool moment when you get to watch that last bit of dirt pulled away. And those miners who had been trapped sometimes for a day, sometimes for multiple days, come out. And they walk out of the darkness and into the light of day. And they come out of captivity and into freedom. And it really is beautiful. But when they walk out of that mine, they take a little bit of it with them. All the debris is still all over their face. They're still dirty and worn down and tired from all the time that they had spent in captivity. In the same way, when we trust in Jesus for salvation, he ransoms us out. He sets us free. He digs away the dirt in the mind that we collapsed on ourselves through sin. He does all the rescue work there. So we walk out of the darkness and into light. We walk out of the hunger and into being able to feast on the goodness of Jesus Christ. We walk out of that desperate situation and into complete and total freedom. But when we walk out of that captivity, we've still got the debris on our face. We still carry with us a lot of the remnants of that mine. And sometimes we even like to run back to the mine and grab some of the dirt and rub it back on our faces. But that's where this next passage comes in. That's where the next part of the salvation process takes over. He says, so that your faith and hope are in God. And then verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. When he says obedience to the truth here, this is where we get back into that conducting yourselves accordingly. If you've been ransomed, if you've been made a believer in God, if you've been saved out of that mind and out of captivity, now it's called time to live like someone who has been set free, someone who has been forgiven, someone who has gone from death into life. You need to be obedient to what Jesus is calling you to do. He ransoms us out. He makes us believers. And then he calls us to obey his commandments and to walk in the steps that he has laid out for us. 
And it's that obedience that begins to wipe off the debris. He uses that obedience to begin to purify us, to begin to shape us, to begin to refine us. This is the process that we call sanctification, where we now walk hand in hand with Jesus as he leads us in the path that we should go. And as we grow in humble obedience to the gospel, and as we conduct ourselves the way that Christ has called us to conduct ourselves, he begins to day after day wipe off more and more of that debris so we look less like we belong in the mines and more like we belong out in the light. And it is a beautiful, lifelong process, and it's not always just perfectly linear because sometimes things are going well, and sometimes, like I said, we run back to the mine and start to throw some dirt on ourselves, and we have to do a little more cleaning up, but he is walking with us day after day, purifying us through these good works that he's prepared for us and fitting us for eternity. And he does that so that we can take up that work of loving one another with a Christ-like love and with pure hearts so that we can be good ministers of the gospel. Again, the undertone through this book is that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we come from, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, every single member of the kingdom of God, every single man and woman and child who has put their faith in Jesus is called to be a part of the kingdom of priests. We are called to be ministers of the gospel. We are called to love one another the way that Christ loves us and to take that work out into the world. And we can do that because day by day, he is purifying us and fitting us for that work and making us more fit for the job that he's laid before us. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to remember the work that Christ has already done that he has ransomed us from our captivity, that he has forgiven us of our sins, that he has made us new so that we can walk in freedom and in new life. He's made us believers so that we can stand on the faith that he has given us in Jesus Christ. And then we have to understand that he has called us to go to work that he has called us to conduct ourselves well in the midst of our exile and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And that as we do that, he will continue the work of daily purifying us through our obedience, leading us to a love for one another with a pure heart. And he'll continue that process until the day we either breathe our last or he returns again and he makes us perfect and whole by finishing out our salvation. So we're ransomed by Jesus. We're believers in Christ because of Christ. We are purified through the obedience that Jesus walks with us through. And the last term that Peter gives us here is that we are born again. It says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So here's the thing. I can look at that list and say, okay, I am ransomed, I'm a believer, and I'm purified. But here's the problem. I am a sinner. I'm not a believer, at least a very good one. And I am certainly not pure. At least that's true about the old me. But here's the promise that is laid out for me in this passage of scripture. 
I am not the old me. And if you've put your faith and your hope in Jesus, you are not the old you. Even though there may be some remnants of that and you may feel like the old you more often than you feel like the new you, the reality is and the truth is that you have been born again because of Jesus. That you have been made new. That you are a new creation made in the image of Christ for the purpose of glorifying God. And all of those things that were objectionably true about who you were are no longer true about you anymore. And in place of that, you are now to the core of it a person who is ransomed, who is a believer in Jesus, and who is purified even in the times when you might not really act like it or you not, might not really believe it. So any time that you begin to forget who you are, because maybe your actions don't reflect Jesus, or because the world around you is a little more convincing, any time that you doubt that you can do the work of a priest in the kingdom of God, that you are a minister of the gospel saved by grace. Anytime that you find yourself living a little more like Babylon than you do like heaven, remember. Remember that you have been made new, that you have been born again into a new creation by Jesus. And here's the beautiful truth of that. The new you is the true you forever. That there is no going back. There is no reverse birth process here. That once you have put your faith and hope in Jesus and you have been born again by the power of the resurrected Christ, there is no going back and your identity will never change. When the Holy Father who governs over heaven and earth looks at you, he sees you as his child made in his image, saved through Jesus Christ, and nothing will ever change that. Peter says you haven't been born again by perishable seed, but by imperishable seed. You haven't been born of the stuff that grows and dies. You have been born of the stuff that lasts forever. You're not just an annual that pops up. You're not a perennial that comes up and dies and comes up and dies. You are an evergreen baby. You have been saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus once and for all, and nothing will ever change that. So as long as you live in exile, as long as we are tempted to doubt and waver, as long as we find ourselves falling into those patterns of sin and rubbing that dirt on our face time and time again, we are called to remember. Because if we are going to conduct ourselves in a manner pleasing to God, if we are going to live like people who have been ransomed, who believe in Jesus, who have been purified and born again, we need to remember that those things are true. If we're going to take up the work as ministers in the kingdom, like we are all called to do, and again, we can't stress this enough that as we go through these pages of 1 Peter, that underlying current is that every single person who bears the name of Jesus is a minister of the gospel and we have ministerial gospel work to do. And if we're going to conduct ourselves well as ministers of the gospel, we have to remember the work that Jesus has done for us, in us, and through us. The work that he's called us to do and we have to remember the promise that we have that one day our exile will end and we will feast in the house of Zion. Let's pray.
Father God, we are just so incredibly thankful for every reminder that you give us of who we are in you. God, I just want to pray over our church this morning. For anyone who is tempted to forget because their guilt and shame because of their sin is so overwhelming and oppressive that they don't feel like a new creation. They feel like they put themselves back in captivity. God, I pray that you remind them that you have set them free and that sin no longer has dominion over us. That's not who we are and it's not what we have to do. God, for any tempted by the false idols around us, by temptation to sin or to begin living like or worshiping like the Babylon around us, God, remind them that you have set them apart and called them to good works and obedience and that you are purifying us through those works, making us more like Jesus every day and help the goodness of Jesus be more radiant and beautiful and clear and obvious than anything else the world tells us. God, for those struggling with doubt, walking with Jesus, but finding it really hard to believe. I give them a double measure of your grace. Make yourself manifest and so clear to them and set them on a foundation of faith that only comes from you. God, as the world around us tries to tell us who we are, as our memories try to tell us who we are. God, we pray that you protect us with the truth that we have been born again and made totally new and that that will never change. As we prepare to come to the table, God, we pray that the bread and the cup would be a reminder of the work that Jesus has done fact that the work needed for salvation is finished and the death and resurrection of Christ and that every time we come to the table that we would receive strength and grace so that we can conduct ourselves with fear and exile in a manner pleasing to you and in a way that reflects your goodness and grace because we remember who you are, we remember what you've done, and we remember who you've made us to be. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to take a moment and reflect and pray.